Today, Tony Correa has joined us, and uh, this is a little intro before we get into the interview. Um, I just want to say that uh, Tony, when I joined the wine industry, he was the guy always in the conferences at the lectern speaking. You know, he was this this big, big, important guy. You know, he's still a big, important guy, but it's it's many years later, and, um, you know, we're friendly. It's also, <laughs> that's pretty cool. And he's a very uh, knowledgeable person and also tells great stories, has a good sense of humor. Uh, if you're in finance, you've heard you've in the wine business, you've you've heard from him before, but we we do touch on some topical stuff. But uh, if you're not in the wine business, you may not have heard from him. And and he he knows a lot and is very worth listening to. I mean, Jacqueline, have you heard him speak before? I have actually. Really? I, think he's, you him? I heard him on a replay of a wine industry symposium uh, panel, I think on vineyards. Okay. Vineyard, that vineyard panel every year that talks about sure. the state of um, the agricultural side of the business. And he's always well-known speaker in that, in that space for sure. Exactly. So, well, good. You've heard him. Our, our talk I thought was top, very topical. I mean, yes. we touched on the current deal flow, current interest rate environment, stuff that people, whether you're in finance or not, it's going to affect your life. We talk about recruiting new appraisers, and there seems to be a real issue, but it can be very lucrative. It's a place where you can be an entrepreneur at, after you've you know finished your training. Um, so I do hope somebody listening to this is going to to hear our cry. I mean, because appraiser getting an appraisal is is absolutely necessary part of financing in the wine space and if there's real estate involved of course uh you know we don't do that but we do value um wine companies mike fisher our partner does the wine company stuff but you know tony does the vineyards he does the wine production facilities as a real estate asset and it's just super vital to the whole financing process so Hopefully, uh, somebody out there is going to kind of take on the need to develop some new appraisers. I don't know if it'd be a local college or what, but the thing about it is, is this, in order to do your job well, and I think Tony personifies this, you have to know it's it's not some boring technical thing. You really have to have a global view of the wine industry. You really have to understand all the, the you know, the pressures of demand, supply, you know, all of it to, to really render a a thorough analysis so it, it could be very interesting so i hope somebody somebody will jump in <laughs> some young people will get inspired podcast listeners small fortune podcast listeners today we have tony korea joining us if you're in finance in the wine business you you know tony he has been an appraiser in this most recent professional iteration in the california vineyard and winery property space for, I don't know, he'll tell us how many years. But if you're not in finance, you might not have uh, listened to his uh, stories and opinions. And and he's a, a great storyteller and he has a ton of opinions, right, Tony? <laughs> well, you know, you know, the old joke about appraisers, if, if you want 12 different opinions, just ask three appraisers. <laughs> Such a great, great <laughs> line and says it all. I mean, it is, it's a, it's, it, it is an art 
as well as the science, that's for sure. And the thing with Tony, too, that uh, makes him appropriate for our Small Fortune podcast is that he's also been an entrepreneur for almost all of his career, as far as I know. So we don't have enough time in a half hour podcast to, you know, go through your whole career, Tony. But for the listeners of our podcast, what would you like them to know about your how you came to be the OG appraiser in the field? Well, it's a simple story. I started out, I grew up on a farm west of Fresno and we had a small vineyard that made raisins. And, um, uh, when I, I went off to the service and was a spook, uh, Russian linguist intelligence stuff and, uh, came back and uh, took over the family farm and went to work at Caltrans and folks found out that I was a farmer. And they said, oh, we need farm appraisers. And so I became a farm appraiser. And um, I've been doing that for well over 40 years. And if you're going to appraise farms or agricultural properties, then the wine business is the place to be because that's the most fun, the most challenging projects are in the wine space. I And I taught uh, agricultural property appraisal out at Fresno State, go Bulldogs. Mm-hmm. for for 14 years and uh started my own company went through a very couple of iterations working for some different outfits and finally decided I needed to be on my own and I was at the time I was a partner in a commercial real estate brokerage and so I traded my shares for the appraisal department and suddenly I had my own little company and I did that for a number of years, and then I eventually sold that company to my partner. And since 2008, my wife Stephanie and I have been running our own little company. We're now headquartered in beautiful downtown San Juan Batista, and we continue to work uh, almost exclusively in wine, wine properties, primarily in Napa and Sonoma, but also on the Central Coast. And how is the uh, adobe coming along? Oh, the adobe. Yes, down here, three years ago, we bought an old adobe Pueblo building as our home and spent the next couple of years renovating it, remodeling it, keeping the character of the original Pueblo style, but also upgrading everything and making it more functional and putting in, you know, like modern appliances and wonderful things like that. But I would, you know, just caution anyone who has any dreams of doing something like that to think twice about it because the Adobe structure is very difficult to work with. You know, you think about, well, we need to add some electrical outlets over here. Well, that's easier said than done when you're dealing with, you know, walls that are 18 inches thick of solid mud. Oh, my God. Yeah, I think that... um uh, Bill Price, Tom Bonami, uh, d- built in Sonoma. They they acquired something that was an adobe, and it yeah, it sounded like a, they bit off more than they could chew. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> got- I think I think Bill did a good job on that thing. I, I think they he was able to chew it, but I just think it took a lot longer. Yeah, and, lo- and it cost a lot more money doing these things. Yes, so. yes, yes, yes. Bill Price could swing it. For sure. And and you guys have done, too. I look forward to seeing what, how far along the last time it came through. It was right at the beginning. So hope to see it. So anything else about your 
career or appraisal generally that you you want to tell our listeners who hopefully won't all be in finance? Well, no, actually we we do we hardly do any lender work anymore. We're mostly concerned with uh, tax work, and we do an awful lot of consulting on on actual deals where transactions are pending, and we'll, we'll work for a buyer or a seller in determining asset values when they're buying a, a complete business. Sometimes, you know, frequently we've had opportunities where we've worked for both parties in a transaction, just trying to stabilize the allocation of assets, uh, which is can be a challenge uh, when you're talking about wine properties, especially, you know, unique winery properties. The uh, The determination of, of value is really something. But just a comment to add about the appraisal profession, in terms of ag appraisal, people who do agricultural property valuations, uh, mm-hmm. we're a dying breed. You know, the folks that have, are my colleagues have all been retiring or dying, and we just don't have the same number of young, trained professionals coming up through the ranks. And there is a real shortage of, of competent, experienced appraisers for agricultural properties in general and specifically for you know vineyard and winery properties on in in california oregon and washington yeah i know you and i've talked about this before tim allen who we talked to recently also in the cpa space described the same thing and it's perplexing to me i mean the amount of money folks in your profession are able to charge for the work it just seems that there's money to be made is it just that people don't know about this as a profession or what do you attribute the lack of incoming uh, trainees to? Well, I, I think the answer is pretty simple. Uh, you know, in the old days, when I came up in the profession, there were lots of companies and governmental agencies that had training programs and that would bring, you know, young folks in and, and put them through a training program, send them to school, do all those things. So there was a an entry path, and that doesn't exist today. There's very, very few entities out there that have any kind of a training program for young appraisers. Probably the only one that of any significance is ag, the ag credit system, yep. who still bring in interns and, and work them up and so they can become competent appraisers. But the barriers to entry are significant. You have to... Uh, the certification process that prevails in California today is a challenge. You know, you need to stack up all these college hours and then all specialized training in the appraisal profession. And then you've, you've got to pass a test and get certified. And then you have to find someone who will take you on as a trainee because you have to get so many hours of actual experience. And that's very difficult today. There's, there's, not a lot of folks, uh, the old professionals, that are willing to take on trainees because of the extra burden that it yeah. carries. Yeah, no, I, I know in my line of work, we're not we're not interested in training somebody who will then go on uh, to do something else. So I, I I hope that the thing is solved because you know we're going to talk here in a minute about you know what you actually do on a day to day basis and how how fundamental, uh, especially because the wine business is so capital intensive. In specifically in vineyards and, and wine production facilities, you know, having a functioning financial flow that includes the ability to get an appraised value to support either a transaction or your bank lending or whatever, 
so hopefully the industry will figure out a way to solve it because it's it's got to be solved. So on the sort of broader question of the wine business, I we, we've had a couple themes come up in this very short effort of doing a podcast uh, regarding risks in the wine business and you know areas where people can get themselves into trouble. And I I was going to ask how you feel the either the ag part of the business or the appraisal part of the business kind of in, flows into these risks. And the, the three themes are uh, capital structure, making sure that you're you know, basically you're, you're financing a combination of loans and equity overall matches the duration of the assets. The other risk is overproduction. Um, and then the final is making what you like, not what the consumer likes or trying to figure out what the consumer likes. Don't, you know, sort of that, that kind of thing. Um, in your line of work, uh, in these, with re- regard to these risks, w- what do you see? Well, I think, you know, the capital issue is something that's uh, very critical to the wine business because, you know, as we know, it's, it's a long-term proposition mm-hmm. and, you know, even here in California, we, you know, we tend to think, well, 10 years is a long time. But if you look back at wine in general as a business, uh, you look at the old world and the folks in, you know, France and Spain and Italy, they, they tend to think in terms of generations, you know, like we've been in this for 10 generations and you, you develop a different perspective and it's important. You talked about, you know, matching the, the term of your financing to the, the, uh, life of the asset. And, you know, when back in, in an earlier life, uh, one of the companies that I worked for, I hustled money. I was a, a loan consultant. We placed large agricultural mortgage loans on large properties. And as I learned then, the smart people would borrow money from the insurance companies, long-term fixed rate mortgages, so that they had a solid base and they knew that that was, that was what it was going to be and what the payments were going to be, et cetera, et cetera, for, you know, for a, a long term, 20 or maybe even 30 years. And then, you know, structure their uh, operating financing with the local bank or whoever, ag credit or someone like that, so that they had the flexibility, but still had that the underlying fixed uh, mortgage loan. And, the risks that we have seen, obviously, in the last year with it impacting banks even more so than the borrowers is this sudden boom in, in interest rates. You know, when the Fed realized that inflation wasn't, was real and wasn't going to go away and the Fed started raising their interest rates dramatically and all of a sudden folks were kind of left with their pants around their ankles saying, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've, I've got, you know, 50% of my assets are in bonds that pay 1.2% and the current rate is 6% or thereabouts, then suddenly uh, their, you know, their balance sheet kind of changed dramatically and caused all sorts of problems. And the, the problem is always, you know, there's an abundance of risks in agriculture in general and, of course, the wine business. And that's any given year you can have a disaster. You know, it can be a, a market disaster. You know, somebody stops buying your product or the, you know, the floor falls out of the pricing mm-hmm. or, you know, you can have crop risks. Uh, today, a lot of our growers out there are, are fighting mildew and this weather that we're experiencing right now, we're in the second half of August. 
and it's hot and humid and the mildew is going crazy. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's all sorts of things that, you know, can affect your crop or your, your growing, uh, uh, you know, your long-term assets, your actual vine or tree, all those risks can, you know, it can come together at any given time. And, and if you're, if you're caught in a bad crop year and your, you know, your underlying financing is coming due in that winter, then that makes for an awkward conversation with your lender. So you want to yeah. avoid putting yourself in where you're, you're going to be forced to refinance in a down market. You always want to, you want to structure whatever you do, your business, your financing, your marketing plans, everything is focused so that you never get squeezed into a corner in a down market because down markets do come around and they make for unpleasant reason. There's ways <laughs> to avoid that. So the, the structure is, you know, set yourself up so that you can ride through the down markets and then be, you know, have a little bit of flexibility to react when it's time to buy. Absolutely. And then, of course, there's the ag risk. So, so there's, yes, the, the, that financing problem, the um, ag risk, though, as well, right? And in overproduction, if you're in a state model in particular, you get what you get, whether that's too little or too much. So that that's sort of directly how agriculture affects the business. It, it can cut both ways. But when I was back hustling money, the fellow I worked for was a, a very wise old fellow, and he taught me a lot of what I've forgotten since then. But hmm. one of one of his favorite terms was never underestimate the ability of the California farmer to overproduce any profitable crop. And that's absolutely true when you talk about permanent plantings, because you know, almond price is good. So everybody goes out and plants almond trees, not bothering to think that everybody else is doing exactly what they're doing. And then five years down the road, all those trees come into production and, oh my God, we're awash in almonds and the price falls out. And we, we see that in the wine business mm-hmm. for decades. Uh, you know, I believe in the wine cycle and Bill Turrentine had his, you know, massive uh, uh, yes. manic depressive wheel of fortune. Yes. The wine okay. business, you know, we just go, we're locked into this. 10 or 12 year cycle of overproduction, underproduction, you know, we, the price is high. So we plant too much. So then there's too much. And so the price falls down. So then we pull vines out of the ground and then the price goes up and the price goes up. So we plant more vines and it just keeps on that same roller coaster ride. And it keeps happening. You know, every time it's different, they say, oh, well, the cycles, you know, there's no such thing as a wine cycle. There's all these other factors and all these influences and macroeconomics, et cetera, et cetera. But the bottom line is we keep going through those same cycles. Triumph of hope over experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, well, well, that's the old, and that's one of the things about farmers. There's always hope, you know, they. There's an old story about an old farmer who just kind of up and died one day and nobody could figure out, uh, you know, what was wrong with him. So they went in and did an autopsy and they opened him up and they figured out that he was just plumb full of next year's. (laughs) (laughs) The farmer's mentality is that, well, it's going to be better next year, you know. It's just like uh, today, you know, everyone's saying this is going to be a wonderful vintage. And, you know, every year everyone says it's going to be a wonderful vintage every year. 
And some of them are, and some of them aren't. Anything you, else you want to kind of share on the ag kind of side of the, and risks side of the equation before we get into capitalization rates? Well, you know, the uh, a lot of folks just underestimate the risks involved in agriculture in general, and specifically in wine, you know, because, you know, we can have absolute disasters and we, you know, they don't happen frequently, but they can come, you know, you can get a crop wiped out. You know, we haven't lost a crop to a frost for quite a while, but those are still a, a risk, even though people tend to protect for from those. But uh, there, you know, things can happen that adversely affect your crop. And the, the classic example is the wildfires and the smoke taint of 2020. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of folks today are struggling with the loss of their 2020 crop. You know, and if you're a, a Cabernet producer in, in Napa Valley, you would likely, you know, be a couple of years before you release that crop. And so the that 2020 vintage would have been normally flowing through the, you know, the, the product line right now and would have been, you know, bringing them cash into their coffers. And that hasn't been happening, you know, for this last year or so. And that's, you know, that's a big impact on the financials of any winery and, and a lot of growers, you know, they got some crop insurance money, but that didn't really cover their losses. So it's, um, it, it's always something. And in California, we have an abundance of risks that aren't necessarily shared everywhere else, but most other places aren't making wine. But, you know, we have earthquakes, we have fires, we have floods, we have droughts and the, the just for a, a second, the, the one big issue for agriculture going forward in, in California is going to be the long-term drought. I mean, it's easy to forget now because we've had this enormous winter this last year, but uh, we're, we're in a long-term drought pattern, and the drought is going to be a significant impact on all agriculture. And wherever you are, you're going to have to make sure that you, number one, that you've got solid water and that you have perfected your legal rights to that water. I think a a lot of folks have found out in the last several years that they didn't have the rights they thought they had when it comes to water in California. So, Tony, you would advise anybody who currently owns a, from what you've just said, who currently owns a winery to go check and make sure that they have perfected all their water rights. It's never too late to go back and do that work if if you if you hadn't done it yet, right? Absolutely. You know, you want to confirm, you know, even even groundwater, we've always, you know, had this concept that the groundwater underneath your land belongs to you. Um and it may belong to you, but it doesn't mean you're going to be able to pull it up and use it without regulation from the state and the you know, our new Sigma, the State Groundwater Management Act, is in effect now, and it's going to continue to restrict pumping of groundwater in a lot of areas. I, I think a lot of folks woke up to that when their their wells in the Russian River Valley or in Alexander Valley were um, constrained by the state because they were pumping groundwater, which the state believes is actually underground river flow, and they're therefore subject to state regulation. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that because the state is going to continue to crack down on the stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a finite. It's definitely a zero sum game at this point. If it ever was not, uh, it definitely is now. So 
uh, that that's an, an amazing level of risk that uh, can be managed to a certain point. But at the end of the day, Mother Nature and, and is going to do what she's going to do. I wanted to touch on capitalization rates and valuations generally, because that's your line of work. It's um, I, I'll find a good article explaining capitalization rates and we can put it in the show notes uh, for folks who are not familiar with it. But um, sort of, I, I'm no, you know, <laughs> I don't live in, in, in finance and numbers all that much anymore these days. But, you know, it's fundamentally the way that a combination I would characterize and you can correct me, I'm maybe maybe wrong, but it's kind of the way that, uh, that risk and interest rates and the economy kind of play together to drive what the value of a particular piece of real estate is in relation to its cash flow. Like the higher the cap rate goes, the lower the value. So um, we, and as you mentioned, we've just been through 16 months of the Fed raising interest rates. And so we're kind of in a flux period as well, right? It's, it's it, when you're looking backwards over a period of time where the rates have been quite stable, it's kind of easy to choose a cap rate. But right now, where it's all moving around, it's 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 a different kettle of fish. So, what's going on with cap rates and the derivative from that? What's what's likely to happen in valuation? Well, that's a good question. Cap rates, of course, are they're they're a complicated beast, actually, because if you you look at that, if I'm a buyer and I'm looking at a vineyard property and I I think it has a stabilized annual income of X. You know, I can produce five tons of grapes and sell them at, you know, $5,000 a ton, and it costs me $10,000 an acre to grow it. Well, then I, I can quantify what I think is going to be an annual income. And so if I apply a cap rate to that annual income, it theoretically tells me what the value of the property should be. But that cap rate incorporates, number one, my anticipated yield. And if I'm an investor today, I probably want a yield higher, much higher than what we've seen in, in just even the recent past. I, um, uh, Steph and I, my wife and I just, uh, recently yesterday went to the bank to roll over some CDs that were maturing. <laughs> the, the rates on the CD are ridiculous. You know, a two month CD at Jumbo was at 0.02% and a three month, one month later, was 3%. A six-month was 5%, and a two-year was something like 0.03 again. So, you know, we're seeing an inverted yield curve right now where the right. short-term rates are very high because of the Fed's actions, and longer-term rates are, are lower than short-term rates. So what does that tell us? What's the perception of the future? So that cap rate is capturing your perception of the future. Our, our great uh, price is going to go up. Our operating costs going to go up. Is the value of the property going to go up? If the value of the property goes up, well, then I can pay a you know I can pay a price based on a lower cap rate because I'm assume I'm going to make my yield off of the the appreciation of the asset value over the years. And in in Napa Valley, that appreciation factor is a very big deal because everyone assumes that values in Napa will never go down and that they will always over long term go up. And so if if I have that, you know, confidence that that values, asset values are going to continue to increase, which and they certainly have if you look back over since, you know, the 70s, 
uh, Napa Valley is certainly the place to be. If I'm in somewhere else, maybe in Sonoma or the Central Coast, maybe I don't have that level of confidence about how asset values are going to go up. So I'm going to want a higher cap rate to offset the, you know, that, well, maybe it's not the perception that the values are going to go up, but at least they might be stable. But also mm-hmm. recognizing in, you know, in secondary areas like the Central Coast that values go up and down. Great prices go down, values go down. Napa is is unique in that there are so many buyers. It is truly a world-class market now. So we compete with Bordeaux and Burgundy and, and Chianti, Brunello, et cetera, et cetera. We're, we, are, we play in a world market for many of the buyers for Napa properties come out of France and Italy uh, and even Spain, Australia, Canada. Don't forget Korea. Yep. <laughs> yep. We, we do have our Asian buyers. So it, it's a world market. So the competition is always very strong. And the competition, if there's a lot of competing bidders for a property, they're going to drive the price up and that's going to drive the cap rate down. And then yep. you look at that deal and say, well, the cap rate was only 33%. What does that tell me? If I go out and look at another property and look at it, put a 3% cap rate on it, it it yields a great big price. And is somebody willing to pay that price? We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the rate environment, setting aside, well, who knows what, you know, what's going to happen with Napa, but as a general matter with this rate fluctuation, when things settle out, I guess it's just too many factors, but you know, all things being equal, it does mean that values are likely to soften. Correct. Well, with the exception of, just one one little observation in all of our wine markets now we've seen a bifurcation so you have in any given market space you have two different markets you have the very 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 cream of the crop at the top maybe the top 3% of properties that are true ultra premium sites and people will pay whatever they have to pay if they want to buy one of those then you have everything else which is just kind of production type vineyards or wineries and if you're not in that top tier then your prices are likely to fluctuate and you'll you know the the things will change as the economics change so very likely we'll see some adjustment you know i think a lot of people are waiting to see what happens with this crush uh you know we've got a lot of things going on and and certainly it's going to be a late crop and it probably will have some log jams when it comes to harvest and, and, you know, they'll be very busy at the scales and people will be trying to get their grapes in and everybody will be trying to get, do the same thing at the same time. When we, this crop is settled and people know exactly what they delivered and how much they're getting paid, um, then I think you'll see a lot of folks who may become more motivated to sell and that typically, you know, a a motivated seller usually leads to a lower price. Right. Yeah. In in my line of work, the M&A side, I always say that the the key to getting a deal done is not the motivated seller, it's the motivated buyer. (laughs) Um, So we we try to find those. So what are you, we're kind of getting towards the end of the conversation. Uh, We'll have to have you back because you know so much, but I just thought maybe deal flow kind of is, do you have a vision on that? I I feel like deal flow kind of hit an air pocket for two reasons. First being this Federal Reserve activity, you know, 11, I think 11 rate changes in 16 months. Um, 
but also we in the wine business had our own little little miniature financial hurricane when two of the major banks that lend to the wine business, first Silicon Valley Bank, then um, First Republic, kind of had a moment there, which they seem to have sort of gotten gotten through okay, but I think it's left a lot of uncertainty in financing. I mean, what are you seeing in terms of transaction volume deal flow, both in the vineyard and in the winery production space? Is that showing up? Well, we, you know, it hasn't been a terribly active year so so far. And to your point about Silicon Valley Bank and then, you know, First Republic, that caught me absolutely flat footed. You know, when we were doing a lot of lender work, we used to do a lot of a lot of work for both those banks. I thought they were both very well run banks and I'd you know, never looked at their, you know, balance sheets, but I thought they were well run and well capitalized. And I was floored when the, the announcement came out about Silicon Valley Bank. And we had banked with First Republic for many years and I thought they were absolutely the best bank that we had ever dealt with. And when, when they slid, it, it was uh, you know, an absolute surprise and I think a lot of folks were scared when that mm-hmm. happened about what it would do to, you know, credit in, in the wine space because they were both big lenders. But uh, I think that's, it's worked its way through and, and everybody's fairly comfortable that there hasn't been a disaster in, in that, that end of the spectrum. But uh, it also clearly now, I, I think credit is a little tighter. Part of it is just a function of, you know, interest rates are so much higher. So if you're, you know, if you're loan is a you know renewing loan and you know when you took it out and for the last several years it's been floating around three percent or three and a half percent and all of a sudden you're looking at seven and a half percent that changes the dynamics of what the, the bank can can lend you and also i think most of the lenders are taking a, a pretty hard look at their you know risk profiles for the various industries and certainly for the wine business and you know there's a lot of a lot of talk about declining wine sales, the retail sales of the finished product. And I think that has played into a lot of this. So we haven't seen an awful lot of, you know, transactions happening. I suspect that will change as we head into the winter because there are a lot of properties that are out there for sale. Uh, and I think uh, as we have talked, I, I think folks will become a little more motivated as we go deeper into the winter. and. You know, the Fed's still making noises. They may raise rates once again down the road. And, and that's that's a scary thing that, you know, higher interest rates are a, a double-edged sword. They cut both ways. No question. And in such a capital-intensive business, it's the wine industry is probably more sensitive to that than many. It is certainly a meaningful thing going on here in the wine business. But we've been through it before. Yeah. Yeah. We and we'll get through it again. Yeah. 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 Well, Tony, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have any last uh, words of wisdom, uh, particular keys to success for the wine business, or or anything you like to say to the listener or listeners? Well, you know, I'll just I just borrow the title of your podcast. You know, how to make a small fortune in the wine business is start with a large one. (laughs) There you go. Thank you so much for joining us, Tony. Okie doke. Pleasure being here. Hi, Small Fortune listeners. If you have any questions or ideas for Carol, email us at smallfortunepodcast at gmail.com. 
And we really love it if you could follow us on your favorite podcast platform and like, review, or share the show. Please join us next time. Thanks. Yeah, I think it was good. It's hard to make people excited about appraisals sometimes. <laughs> you know, it's not a super Sometimes, thing. always. Yeah. It's kind of boring, but know, like accounting, but it's so important. Yeah, I know. Okay. Well, let, we'll listen to it and I will uh, probably snip out some of my babbling. I think you were, as as usual, on point and I was rambling. So <laughs> I don't think you're rambling, but I think it, you were trying to make it interesting and it is interesting. It's just not sexy, I think. <laughs>